Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Henry Washington. What's up, bud? What's new, man? What have you been up to? Oh, man, I am I am getting ready to hit the road doing some traveling, obviously. So that's what I've been focused on. But uh, glad to be here chit-chatting with you. I always love talking about real estate and finances. Yeah, it's a good time. Can you tell the audience a little bit about who we're talking with today? Yeah, today we got to talk to Nick Majuli, and he was giving us a lot of great information about how he is investing in the stock market, about how he can or about how we can invest in real estate through the stock market and really gives us some great advice about how to invest, even given this current environment, really given any economic environment, right? There's always a way we can be investing. And he gives some great perspective on the things that we should be thinking about as we're starting to build wealth. Exactly. Yeah. I I think the stuff he was talking about, particularly around like risk and mitigating risk was super cool and really transferable between the stock market and real estate investing. So even if you're not an active stock market investor, you have a little bit of money in there, pay attention to this. I I learned a ton because his just philosophy about how to invest for the long term, how to mitigate risk and be successful over the appropriate time horizon, uh, I think can apply to any asset class. So I, I love talking to Nick. He, he, well, you probably know that his his blog's called Of Dollars and Data. So he's <laughs> clearly a kindred spirit of mine. <laughs> Absolutely, but but in all honesty, like that data driven 
aspect of looking at investing really takes the emotion out of it. And and the, the one thing I know about investing in real estate and the stock market is that it can get super emotional. With real estate, you can get tied emotionally to the assets that you're looking to invest in. And with the stock market, you can definitely get emotionally tied to seeing that number go green or red, right? And so like looking at or, or, or listening to how he takes data and uses that to make decisions or inform his decisions, inform his long-term investing strategy, uh, really helps you take the emotion out of it. And and in all honesty, that's one of the big keys to being a successful investor in any asset class. Very, very well said. Well, let's bring Nick in, but first we're going to take a quick break. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Nick Majuli is the Chief Operating Officer at Ritz Holtz Wealth Management, the owner and author of a blog called Of Dollars and Data, and the author of the book Just Keep Buying. Nick, welcome to On The Market. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. So Nick, can you tell us a little bit about your position at Ritzholt Wealth Management and what your blog and book are all about. Yeah. So at Ritholtz, I'm actually in a operations role where I'm kind of like doing data science, business intelligence, as I would say, to like kind of I'm getting data across the firm and then using that information, giving it to, you know, key decision makers so we can make decision about what we want to do next, how we're closing business, et cetera. That's all that type of stuff. Right. So it's really kind of an operations role. Um, it's very different from the stuff I write about, which obviously I still use data, like data is the key theme here, right? I have dollars and data is the name of the blog. Um, but I'm basically just using data to like get insights and make decisions. And right. And that's the same thing I've done with personal finance and investing. And so even though I do, I say, you know, the book's a data driven guide to personal finance. It's very accessible. You're going to be able to read it. My 75 year old grandmother read it and she said she could understand like 80% of it. So, and she's someone who's never invested in her life. So I will take 80% from a 75, uh, inexperienced 75 year old over anything else. So, um, I try to make it really accessible for people, but I do try to use a lot of data to make a lot of the arguments that I, that I make. Um, and we can get into some of those. We can kind of talk about that more broadly, but that's kind of what, that's my stick, so to speak. And in that operating role, you're mostly talking about equities, like the stock market, right? Yeah. So I'm saying in the operations role I do, like, yes, we we invest. Yeah, we're, we're, like, we're basically index investors. Obviously, we have some proprietary stuff we do with trend following. We have some other things we have that you can't get everywhere else. But for the most part, we're not trying to beat the market, right? As a wealth management firm, I think we've, re- we've recognized, you look at the evidence, like beating the market's very difficult. And so we're saying, hey, we're not going to be the people that beat the market, right? We're just going to kind of go, you know, and try and m- match the market return as best we can. 
plan and you know we're thinking about someone's long-term financial plan right it's not like oh if you beat the mark by one percent or two percent whether you're going to make it or not that's really not the issue right it's more about like what's your long-term plan are you going to be able to reach your financial goals and so it's very personalized in that way and in in any of these roles that you have which there are many how involved are you in real estate investing so real estate investing i think for me i haven't done much historically i mean i do own reits and that's my main exposure to real estate because one i want to be diversified so if diversification is your key thing to be diversified and actually own physical real estate it requires a, a lot more capital right and unless unless you're not doing a reit right if you're not doing a real estate investment trust um, so that's one thing to keep in mind, right? So given that I haven't been able to go and buy a bunch of properties, I couldn't have a diversified real estate portfolio without having either most of my money in there. And then it would be, you know, or be like in locations where I would have to have a manager doing it. Like I live in New York city. I cannot afford a diversified real estate portfolio in the city. So because of that, I own REITs, right? So that's the main takeaway there. And I think there's still ways you get exposure to that. And there's, it's interesting in its own right. And I think owning real estate's great. And if you're living somewhere else, you're not living in a very high cost area, it's much easier to do. And so that's like, there are constraints in this type of thing. And that's the thing I, when I'm thinking about real estate, that's how I think about it. Yeah, man. I, you know, I, I like REITs and I think there's some great ways to invest in REITs and still get both appreciation and cash flow. But for our audience, can you talk a little bit about, or just define what REIT is and, and how that relates to real estate investing? Yeah. So a REIT is, it's a real estate investment trust. And I can't remember what year they, there was some law that was passed that basically said these things can exist as a vehicle where it's usually commercial property. There are sometimes our residential REITs as well, but just imagine like all the office buildings in, let's say, New York City, San Francisco, et cetera. There are companies that own a lot of these office buildings and they lease them out and they get paid revenue, obviously, and they have costs, et cetera. But the, legally, a REIT has to pay out 90% of its profits as dividends to its shareholders, right? And so because of that, that's why this is like a vehicle where you can actually have some exposure to real estate, right? And so obviously REITs didn't do that well, obviously, during COVID because, you know, a lot of these places, you know, they weren't going to re-up, et cetera. But, you know, now they've started to, I mean, right now everything's down badly. So it's hard to say whether they're starting to come back. But like the, the market is starting to come back for that. You've heard about people returning to office. It's still not where it was, obviously, pre-COVID. But it is something that's where you have exposure to this, right? And I think the the main thing, you know, when I think about REITs is just the diversification, right? As I said, like, it, it's really, it's interesting to me how people buy real estate because like usually, you know, you buy real estate, it's like you put, let's say you bought a, a $500,000 property, right? You put $100,000 down and then the other $400,000 is financed typically, like, you wouldn't go and like do that with a stock, right? Like you wouldn't go and put like $500,000 into Apple, but like people do this regularly with real estate. And so it's, it's very interesting. Of course, I know stocks are far more volatile. There's a host of other things that why these two asset classes are different. Um, and so like the leverage piece, like that it's okay to lever in real estate, it's accepted and normal, but it's not like no one's gonna give you $400,000 to buy Apple, right? So it's interesting to me kind of that difference, that distinction, but it is still like no one cares as much about the diversification properties, I guess, when you're buying real estate as I, and I try to care a little bit more about that because you never know any one property, anything can happen. That's why I'm, especially if it's an investment property. So I'm like, what can I do to get more diversification? So yes, if I had a lot more capital, I would probably be owning individual properties instead of just REITs. But for now, you know, for, you know, smaller investors, people are starting out, like that's the way that I kind of get it and get involved with it. I think REITs are great. Um, and, and, What's cool about REITs is, yes, you can diversify by still investing in real estate through a REIT, but there's also different real estate asset classes REITs, right? Like, so you can have a REIT that is in commercial real estate. You can have a REIT that's in storage facilities. You can have a REIT that's in residential single family real estate, right? And so there's tons of different REITs out there. And one of my favorite things about investing in REITs is that some of these REITs pay dividends, right? Which is what you get paid just for owning the stock. And so that kind of mimics cash flow in a way. And so if people are interested in real estate investing and truly want real passive income, right? There's no tenants to manage somebody else is doing that. Then you get paid a dividend, right? And then you can still get appreciation from the stock value going up over time. And so do you have any insight as to like what types of 
REITs are your favorite or that you're investing in or that maybe a new investor could look into? Yeah. So I don't actually dig that deep into REITs in terms of like which ones, this, that, like I could go into storage or you could even talk about farmland. Farmland's another, technically it's a kind of REIT. I mean, you would say, is that more land than real estate, right? We, I mean, we start, we're starting to cut hairs here. And so I haven't done that, that level of due diligence or to be honest with you. And I don't really, because for me, it's like, I don't care. It doesn't matter as much right now, especially if you're a small investor, those differences are tiny. And so when I first started investing, like I was like, I'm just going to set up something, get on that path and start going. And then once I kind of have more capital, I can start to optimize that more. And that's something I probably should look into a little bit more, but I don't know as much of like, I'm usually doing commercial and residential REITs, right? For the most part. But I think going forward, like, yeah, that is something I could definitely look into. But yeah, I think that's a big point I try to make, at least in my my personal finance writing. It's like for a lot of people, if you're just starting out right now, it doesn't really matter all that much. And I can just give you a simple example of this, right? It's like from the first chapter of my book, Just Keep Buying. I'm basically like when I was 23 years old, I sat and analyzed my investments, you know, every possible way. But I didn't I wasn't realizing like I only had a thousand dollars like invested at the time, like even like a 10 percent returns, a hundred bucks. Like I was going out every weekend and blowing that hundred dollars on Ubers and shots and dinner. Right. So it, I all those hours were, were kind of for not. Of course, it's useful to have knowledge. I'm not saying you shouldn't study or shouldn't care about stuff. Not that's not what I'm getting at. I'm just saying, like, you can sit here and pick this and that. And if like you have 10 grand to invest, it's not going to move the needle enough. Now, if you have one hundred thousand, if you have half a million, a million, you can start to seeing all all those little differences will make a big impact, right? So it just it's about where you're starting, right? So if you're starting out with just a little bit of capital, honestly, it's not going to really matter all that much which REIT you pick. Obviously, assuming there's like this overarching like upward trend in REITs, right? Obviously, if real estate gets wrecked or you happen to pick the one sector that gets destroyed, then yes, that's not true. But generally, I mean, assuming these things move together in some way that is correlated, then you're, that's not something you're going to have to really worry about too much. But I, I do think if you're interested in that, then yes, you should dig into it and figure out which one you prefer and why. But I'm not like spending all this time digging into that. That's, a, that's such a good point about people just analyzing, spending so much time to analyze whether they're going to make 90 or $95 next year off their investment accounts. <laughs> it's hilarious. Henry, I, I for me, using REITs, like I, I use it as like my FOMO outlet, like when I'm getting <laughs> jealous about someone who's like in this investment class that I don't have the time or energy to invest in, like self-storage. Like I think a lot of people know it's a great great thing. I haven't gotten into that yet, but I buy self-storage reads because I just feel want to, I want to feel like I'm a part of it, even though I'm not really a part of it. But if you think it's you are, but not, not in the real way. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. That's how I started investing in crypto. Was that a FOMO? And now, and now I, I love it, even though my portfolio's down eight hundred thousand um, yeah. percent. Nick's probably like, "Who am I talking to? These two idiots who are talking oh about God. investing for FOMO." <laughs> no, I mean honestly, people, everyone gets FOMO. Like, I got a little. Trust me, I'm the person that says, you know, buying, income producing assets mostly. Don't touch any of this other stuff, right? So, like, ninety something percent of my portfolio is in income producing assets, which is like stocks, bonds, real estate, farmland, etc whatever and i even i bought some altcoins at the beginning of this year and those things were down like 70 percent within like three months and i was like <laughs> why did i but i only put i put like half a percent of my investable net worth so i i am risk hedging i am saying hey if i'm gonna do something crazy i'm gonna do it with a little bit of money relative to my portfolio where it doesn't really matter but it's just like the philosophy of what should i have done that no you know i lost a couple grand i'm like i i, the, I actually wrote a blog post about this there's this place called masa in new york city it's like the most expensive place you can go to so like a di- dinner for two you would spend like twenty three hundred dollars or something that happened to be exactly how much I lost. Like I was like, I rather would have like done that than lost twenty three hundred dollars in all coins. But <laughs> that's a side note. But just going back to that point you just brought about, you know, people spending all this time. Like, imagine you had ten thousand dollars to invest, right? And let's say you're gonna all this research you're gonna do is gonna get you an extra ten percent return. Let's say normally you're gonna get a ten percent return. Now you're gonna get twenty. Now remember that's a big assumption, but I'm I'm trying to make this kind of extreme to show my point, right? So let's say you spend you know ten hours a week doing this, right? And you take you do this fifty hours a week, so you don't do fifty two. I'm just trying to make the math easy, right? So you do this for five hundred hours a year, right? Fifty weeks times ten hours, and. On ten thousand dollars, a ten percent return is a thousand bucks. So by doing all this research, you you add another ten percent. So you add another thousand dollars. But you spent five hundred hours to do that. Do the math on that. That's two bucks an hour. <laughs> You'd been better going to McDonald's and picking up a side shift, right? So that's a lot of people are like that. And of course, if you had a million dollars or a billion dollars, that ten percent is huge, right? But no, most people don't have that type of capital where it's going to actually move the needle, right? So even if you had a hundred thousand dollars doing that, every hour you spent is only twenty bucks an hour. Now that's 
obviously better than McDonald's, but still you kind of get my point. Of course, if you can do that for many years, like you, you're the next Warren Buffett basically, but that's <laughs> most of us aren't. So, so with that in mind, if people, there's, there's tons of people out here who are interested in the stock market, want to diversify their real estate assets into something else. And they don't have that time to put in like, what's your suggestion or recommendation on like how they should get into REITs or the stock market or, you know, how should they spend their time researching how much time is, is enough time? And then how, how do they dive in? Yeah, I would say just buy passive low cost funds. You know, I don't I can't name tickers for compliance reasons. But if you just search like low cost ETFs and like you start just doing, I mean, honestly, with five hours of research, I think most people could find the names of the low cost ETFs. I don't think it matters all that much which one you pick and you just pick some allocation that makes sense for you. Obviously, that's the hard part. Like, should I have 10 percent in bonds or 20 or 40, whatever you pick some bond stock REIT mix? You put it in there and then you kind of wait. And what do you focus on? You focus all your finance, that attention on how do you grow your income? That's where it's at. Because honestly, like at the end of the day, like it's much easier to save money when you have a higher income. It's just like, there's no, you don't need to budget when you have enough money. Right. And so of course there's the people you're like, but I know a guy that makes five times more than me and he spends it all. It's like, yeah, that's a, that's a personal problem that he has, but that's, that's not most people. Right. And I love how like there's all these people that talk about, you know, celebrities that went bankrupt and we can name them or whatever, like maybe Mike Tyson or Lindsay Lohan or Nicolas Cage, whoever you there's you can name you've heard or maybe they went bankrupt once and they came back. I don't know. But you've heard about these things. Right. And I'm like, OK, so you just named like five celebrities that went bankrupt. Guess all the celebrities that like I have every other celebrity like your end is five. <laughs> you're, you have five data points. I have like every other celebrity minus those five. Right. Because they none of those people went bankrupt because they why they have high income. Right. It's, it's yes, you can be reckless, but most people aren't reckless. And so since most people aren't reckless, most celebrities still have wealth. Right. So it, it's funny when you look at it that way. But that's kind of like an example of like where should you be spending your time? And it's like figuring out ways to grow your income. And that could there's a lot of different ways we can do that. But if you guys want to get into that, we can. But if not, like that's my take on what people should be doing with their time. I think that's a, that's a problem. And well, I don't know if it's a problem, but it's a common thread in real estate investing is a lot of people who get into real estate investing do it because they're interested in the, the financial independence movement and want to quit their jobs and focus on getting invest uh, income from their investments in an effort to replace their job. I personally have always taken the approach that like, I'm just going to keep my job and invest for as long as I can hold on to both, because that's probably the best place to be coming from is to get income from more than one place. Of course. Yeah. And that's the point of raising your income. So you can save that money, get it invested and have that that investment pile or those assets paying you, right? So over time, I mean, I actually, in the first chapter, as I said, I'm not trying to just, it's just so relevant for this because like I have something called the save invest continuum. And basically it's like, when you start out, you basically, all the money you can earn is from your labor, right? It's from where you're working, right? So let's say you could save five grand a year. And if you're starting with zero investments, your investments are going to earn you zero a year, right? But over time, as you start throwing money on that pile, that number starts going up. And in theory, one day that number is going to pass the other one. Where in a good year, like let's say, let's just make the math easy. Let's say in a good year, you expect a 10% return. Of course, I, I think it's a little high, but let's just say 10% to make it easy. If you have a $100,000 investment portfolio, that means in a good year, you should make about 10 grand. Now, the question is, can you save 10 grand in a year or not, right? And so eventually, at some point, once you have enough assets, like you're, you're going to be able to save, you're going to earn more money from your investments than you could ever earn from savings, right? And just imagine someone with 10 million bucks, right? A 10% returns a million dollars. Like for you to save a million dollars in a year, it's like you have to have a, a super, super high income, super high savings rate. Most people can't do that, even people with high income. So it, it just goes to show like how much that, what matters when in life. Yeah. I, what I like about what you're saying is, is, and I completely agree with, is that well, first, there's no magic secret sauce, right? Like investing like the same principles apply across different investing avenues it's if you buy at the right time and you hold for the long term essentially you're going to do yourself justice by providing a valuable return in real estate the longer you hold an asset the more value you're going to you're going to essentially bring in it's the same thing if you're looking at stocks that's why with my portfolio I do the same thing i'm just buying quality stocks, quality ETFs, and then I just hold them. I just hold them. My plan is 10 years. And then if you zoom out of, a, of any really, if any, you know, ETF chart for 10 years, you're probably going to see some level of growth. Right. And so I'm just keeping those odds in my favor by buying and holding for the long term. I'm a buy and hold investor with real estate. Same thing with the stock market. 
Yeah, exactly. I couldn't have said it better. Well, that brings me to a, a good question, Nick. One of the reasons I was so excited to have you on is you talk a lot about in in your writing uh, about a principle called dollar cost averaging. Could you tell our audience a little bit who may not have heard of this concept what that means? Okay, just to get this out there, there are technically, if you search dollar cost averaging, there are two different definitions and they mean different things. So we need to specify really? that. And I'll explain. Yeah, I will explain I both that. of them. I will tell you the original definition, which came, which came from Benjamin Graham, which was, you know, Warren Buffett's mentor and he's, you know, he's known as he wrote security analysis, intelligent investor, all that, right? So the original definition is just buying over time. And typically what that means for most people is, you know, if you have a 401k or something, every time, you know, you get paid, you're buying, right? You're you're investing money in your 401k. Or every time you get your paycheck, you take some money out and then you put it in and you buy a stock or an ETF or whatever. That's dollar cost average, simply just buying over time. The problem is some people have, there's also another definition, which is called dollar cost averaging, is where you have a big lump of cash right now. Let's say you sold a business, you had an inheritance, something. It doesn't matter how much it is. I'm just going to use a large number, like $100,000, right? You have $100,000 sitting there because you sold a business or you got an inheritance. And now you want to put that money into the market you want to invest, right? So the question is, do you put it in now or do you slowly kind of average into the market, as I would call it. But some people call that dollar cost averaging. Now, you can see how there's a confusion because the first definition is like you're buying as soon as you get paid, right? The second definition requires you to wait, to hold cash and wait on the sidelines and slowly wait into the market. So when we're talking about dollar cost averaging, we need to be careful which one we're talking about because they can kind of mean different things. One is about investing as soon as you can. The other one's about kind of taking risk off the table by saying, I'm going to slowly wade into the market and get all my money invested, right? Because people are afraid of putting all their money in and then the market crashing, right? And so that's why people say, okay, I'm in a dollar cost average into this market. Um, I don't like using that definition, the second one, because I don't agree with the principle. I think generally, you know, if you look at the data, like going in now and sooner is the better thing to do. And behaviorally, the only time that, you know, averaging in makes sense is when the market's falling, actually. It's the only time that you outperform is because obviously if you put it all in now and it crashes, you know, you would have been better off if you would put it in slowly. Right. So that's the that's the the main takeaway there. But yeah, so just in terms of all cost averaging, I like it because it's a simple behavioral like um, tool that you can use to build wealth. And it's it, it de-risks a lot of stuff because I imagine, you know, we always talk about like all these markets that are like, oh, my gosh, imagine buying, you know, in like December 07 and then like 08 happened. It would have been terrible. Or imagine buying in, you know, February 2020 and then March 2020. Right. So people always talk about these things and it's like, OK, that's true in snapshots. But most people don't even invest like that. Most people are buying over time. So the more you're buying over time, the more you can kind of de-risk that. And it's a very different thing. And I think the most extreme example uh, for those that don't know about the Japanese stock market, had the biggest, you know, asset bubble in probably human history, definitely the biggest real estate and, you know, stock market bubble. And it's still below where it was in like 1989. That's when it kind of peaked in 89. It's still below that. It's been like over 30 years. Right. And the question is, like, people look at that and they say, look, stock market, not all stock markets are great. Look at Japan went nowhere for 30 years, basically. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's true if you put in all your money at the peak, but how many people did that? Most people don't invest like that. And if you had actually put money in over time into the Japanese stock market, it was not a great return. Don't get me wrong, but you're not down 30 years later. You're actually up a little bit. But it's, it, I agree, it's not great, but it changes the story a little bit when you're dollar cost averaging versus you know following other methods. So is this uh, dollar cost averaging the the sentiment behind your book, which is called Just Keep Buying? Yeah, I mean, if I had to give you this question is like, if I have to give you investment advice, and this is kind of like, if you think about like how, how I think, you know, when we're trying to write stuff and convey messages, you want to try and like, give it in as few words as possible. Like, what's the main takeaway, like to grow your wealth, and it's just keep buying, right? For the, the subtitles, proven ways to save money and build your wealth, right? But if I had to give you like a sentence, I would say it's the continual purchase of a diverse set of income producing assets, right? That's the mantra, the continual purchase of a diverse set of income producing assets, right? So if I could give you that, if I could give you a paragraph, I could go further than that. If I needed to give you a chapter, if I had to give you a whole book that's, you know, you see what I'm getting at? It's like, I'm trying to make it so it's just as simple as possible. And yeah, just keep buying is easier to say than dollar cost averaging. Just keep buying is the psychological motivation built in. It is the core philosophy that everything else is built off of. Um, but yeah, there's just, and there's data for it. That's the other thing too. Like if you look at any 10, if I was looking at rolling 10 year period since 1926 and you had just been buying every single month for a decade, there's a 98% chance you would have beaten cash. And there's an 83% chance that you'd have beaten a five month, or I'm sorry, five year treasury. So if you're going to beat 
you know, it's like, yes, there's a 17% chance you wouldn't have beaten Bonds, but, you know, and that's a 10-year period. The longer you take that period out, the, the probability of winning goes up and up and up, right? So that's the kind of takeaway there. That's the kind of message I want out there is like it's data-driven, it makes sense, and it's going to work for most investors. Do you think this principle of dollar cost averaging can work for people who are exclusively or primarily, I should say, buying active real estate investments? I think it can, but you need to have a little bit more money. You need to be a larger real estate investor. And the reason I say that, and or, or you have to be able to find markets that are very cheap, right? Depends when we talk about real estate, like if you can buy, for example, storage facilities for much cheaper than you can buy single family homes or something, it's really about the, the, the position sizing, right? And so because like, let's say a single family home right now in the US, I don't even know what the median price is. Let's just say it's like 400,000. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna guess that actually $400,000, <laughs> right? So something like that. And it, it jumps around it used to be 300, but then it would shot up now. And maybe it's coming down a little bit now, right? So at $400,000, you have to put up, you know, 80K, right? Every single time doing 20% down or every single time you're doing one of these deals. And right. And so it's like to drop $80,000 in cash, like on a consistent basis is not easy. Right. And so because of that, I would say that's not really doable for most uh, people. Obviously, if you have the capital to do that, then yes, you could be decent to real estate by buying this property, then buying that property, et cetera. Um, but that's, that's the really only constraint. Uh, otherwise you could DCA in via REIT, right? And that's another way of kind of getting that. Because it's it's really just position sizing, right? In theory, these are the same thing, but you know we're just talking position sizing here. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I, I agree with you, and, and I think it is difficult for people to wrap their head around putting down those uh, large down payments. And on this show and other parts of Bigger Pockets, we do talk about creative ways that you can do it, borrow money, partner that sort of stuff. But I think the the sentiment I've always personally sort of, uh, you know used around buying real estate is that I like and is similar to dollar cost averaging is like not trying to time the market and like every, you know, even if it takes me two years to save up the money for a down payment, like as soon as I have the money to try and reinvest it. And you know, we're, you're talking to Henry and I are both primarily real estate investors. Um, but like that, that sort of, do you think that like same sentiment applies? I get that it's like a lot harder and you're probably, not diversifying and the math is probably a little bit different about um uh, uh mitigating risk um but do you think like that makes sense for real estate investors i mean yeah that's one way you could do it i mean if you want to do because everything's like preferences right that's another thing too it's like people talk about preferences a lot and like why i or someone else may not want to do individual real estate as much as someone else because maybe you you know a lot about it. maybe you're you like managing tenants maybe you understand a lot about how to fix stuff you have certain skills that me as a real estate investor wouldn't have right and so that gives you an uh, an edge over like if we were both in the same market because you know how to do all these other things or you have good contacts that you could use for fixing and maintenance and all that, and I don't, it's going to be much more difficult for me to outcompete you, et cetera, right? So there's just a host of reasons why that can be beneficial. But yeah, I mean, that's the way to do it. Yeah, you'd have to save up for a down payment and then get another one and then get another one, right? And go from there, right? And there's, it's all about your preferences, right? So like if you enjoy the process of owning the physical property and being there and seeing, it's very different. Right? It's much, I understand why index funds can feel so like, you know, impersonal because it's just like a number in an account or something versus like, wow, this is a physical property that's here, you know? It's not like I walk into an Apple store and say, well, I'm a technical part owner of this store, you know, since I own an Apple share through this <laughs> ETF. So you guys have to like, no, it's even though that's technically true. I mean, I am technically a part owner of Apple, just like I'm guessing almost everyone on uh, listening to this who owns any ETF that owns S&P 500 or an Apple share or whatever. But you get my point. Like I can't, it, I don't feel the same as they're like, no, I am the owner of this property, period. <laughs> yeah. right? So like you clearly can do anything you want, right? So I think that's, that's the difference. I understand some people like that psychologically, so I have nothing against that. Um, but yeah, I think that's a that's a great me method. I mean, uh, either way, you're you're saving up cash to then buy. You, know, you can't you can't buy in increments. It's not like you can say I'm going to just put up a little bit of the the, the first ten thousand the down payment before I get the next seventy or whatever, right? So right. it's one of those things where you have to kind of do it in these big chunks, right? As you kind of get enough money to to chunk it and do that, right? So well, um, I, I I mean, it would be great if they gave us a employee discount for owning Apple shares. That would be really nice, <laughs> but. Uh, I should mention, you know, I full disclosure, Fundrise is a sponsor of this, but there are new sort of um, real estate investing opportunities, crowdfunding, stuff like Fundrise, where you can start to do that if people are interested in that. But yeah, I mean, right now we're mostly talking about traditional, traditional uh 
buy and hold and totally get that. Like a big part of what drew me to real estate investing was the entrepreneurial element of it. Like I like being an entrepreneur. I like figuring out the problems. It's enjoyable for me and um, totally agree. It's just like different personalities and what you want to do with your time. So you guys don't walk into Apple and just show them your stock portfolio and then demand free stuff that. Yeah. Is that, is I just, just walk me? into the stock room and pick stuff <laughs> off the shelf. <laughs> I was like, I was just talking to Tim. Yeah. Tim told me that I'm just going to take this. And just see how that, yeah. See how that works out for you. Okay. Well, I just, I just, I'm now recording on a podcast telling people to commit crimes if they are shareholders of Apple. And I would never do that. So for the record, I did not say that. Yeah. So he, Nick is legally not liable for everything. He if just you said cannot do jokes. what I just said, you cannot do just that jokes. under any circumstance. So. <laughs> so is it is it hard uh right now in this type of economic environment to keep you know stay the course on this type of strategy i mean i think the question is which market are you in i think i generally i would say it's it's tough for people because like we haven't seen it like we've seen crashes before yes i mean and of course it's been a while since the i mean ex- excluding the covid crash the last big one was 08 and so we've had just a bunch of little ones but now we have inflation which changes it too because now your costs you know the 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 cost lines going up the revenue lines going down right in theory from your investment portfolio right so it's like wow that's not a good that's not a good luck not a good place you want to be in right so i understand why that's difficult um for me i just like i don't worry about that type of stuff because like I think about history, right? And history to me is like, the more you've studied history, the more you see like, we go through this stuff over and over and over again. For example, right now, you know, next week I'm going to Italy with my family. The first time my dad and my sister, where all the Majulis are going out there, just kind of, we're kind of returning to the homeland or something. The first time we're doing all this stuff. And in Florence, they have these little thing called wine windows, or they're called, I think they're called like bachelorettes or something. I don't know the exact term, but there's these little tiny windows that are like in these buildings. And someone was telling me like, I was watching a video and they're like, yeah, they, during the black plague, right? During, they would use these little wine windows to kind of, you know, sell goods because they didn't want to come face to face and possibly catch a disease. And apparently during COVID, they started reusing these windows, which had not been used for years because why would we need these, right? And so when you think about this, you're like, wow, history does repeat itself in these weird ways. And so like, yes, there's going to be periods where like stocks don't do well or real estate doesn't do well, et cetera. And there'll be periods, there's gonna be even, a, for example, this could be the beginning of a long decade of like US stocks just going sideways, honestly. Like it could happen, right? They could go down much more and then rally back. Who knows what's gonna happen? But this type of stuff, it's it's par for the course. It happens regularly. We're not going to be hitting all-time highs every single year. And if you think that, it's like, that's just not true. I mean, 2019 was a great year. 2020, we still ended positive despite all the madness in the beginning of the year, right? 2021 was an amazing year, right? So we had these three great years, and now we're down, you know, like 23% as the time of this uh, chat. And so... Yeah, we're probably going to end the year down and how down? I don't know. Maybe 20%, maybe maybe less. Who knows, right? And so that's kind of the question. And so I think that's the tough part. And I think for real estate investors specifically right now, rates, rates are everything right now, right? And so if you're thinking of yourself of investing based on like a lot of people are going to think in terms of payments, right? So, you know, when rates are low, you can afford a higher payment, which means you can, you'll pay more for a house, right? And now that rates are high, you can't make that same payment. So now prices, I think, are going to have to eventually drop, but maybe they don't. You never know. Maybe they'll stay there for a while because people don't want to take those write downs because they bought, you know, they pay way overpaid at a different rate. And now they can't get out of it. Now they're like, oh, I'm just, I guess I'm just going to sit here right? because I can't afford to move, you know. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next few months. Um, people are obviously blaming the Fed and a bunch of other stuff. I don't want to get into all that. I really don't care as much about talking about macro stuff, but it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. What, what I sort of like about your your approach and the dollar cost averaging approach is it's sort of just the the humble way to look at it, right? Isn't it sort of just like acknowledging that you don't know what's going to happen to the market in the short run and not trying to predict it, but in the long run, like you said, historically, you just have you sort of have trust that that things are gonna continue on an upward trend on a timeline that is acceptable to you as a fairly young guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the the main key is like, I, of course, don't know what's going to happen in the short run. I, I don't know what's going to happen in the long run either, to be honest with you. But it's like, there's this hope or this this belief, this expectation that at some point, I don't know when and how long, but if I, my expectation, and it's not even just for the US, I'm saying if you're a globally diversified stock bond investor, I'm sorry, stock bond, real estate, et cetera, investor, and mostly stock in real estate, trust me, bonds, I'm not a massive fan 
China bonds and the only bonds I really own are U.S. Treasuries because I think they're the safest one out there, um, right? Because like the U.S. government could always just print the money. It can never default, right? Because they could just print the money. I'm not saying that's good if that were to happen, but in theory, they can't default. So, you know, it's mostly if you're a global stock real estate investor, I think that portfolio over the long run is going to grow, keep growing. Now, of course, the U.S. could get wrecked. Europe could get wrecked. China could get wrecked. Who knows? I mean, you can see what happened to the Russian stock market or this year went down 80% in a month, right? And even though I've heard it just went down like another 15% in the last like week or, or two because of, you know, now they're talking about getting more troops to go into Ukraine. So people are starting to flee Russia. So you can see like these types of things happen. But I think, yes, there are going to be some markets that do terribly, right? But I think overall, you're a diversified, you know, stock real estate investor, I think you're going to have growth in your portfolio. I don't know what that growth is. I don't know if it's going to be lower than historically, but I think there will be growth. And that is your best chance of building wealth is owning that some of that future growth. So that's kind of my thesis. And that's kind of how I invest my money. Like I'm not sitting here like telling you to do X and I'm doing Y with all these private investments or something else. Like, no, I have 97% of my net worth in financial assets. I don't even own this bookshelf behind me. I don't even own this. This is a furnished. I've got my place furnished. Like I bought the mattress. <laughs> I didn't want to use their mattress, but all my stuff's furnished. Like, yes, these are my, you know, editions of my book and stuff. But like this is, I have a furnished apartment because I'm taking all my money and putting it into financial assets. So like I live this stuff. I have to believe this. Like this is the thesis. I'm not telling you this and then getting rich off selling books. You know, that's not the, what I do. Like I am in all in on this philosophy. I think it's a phenomenal philosophy, mainly because you're doing exactly what we talked about. You're looking at history. History typically does repeat itself. It's data that's there, right? It, it happened. We can see it. And if we understand that, A, we have patience in the long term and history eventually repeats itself, then you put, you essentially put the odds in your favor by doing some research, buying things you know and understand, and then holding them for the long term, right? And I think that, you know, it's 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 this unsexy approach to building wealth, but um, you know, there's there's no there's very few people that get into this game and then they're a bajillionaire in, you know, you know, six months to a year. That's not how this works, right? It's about buying quality assets and then letting them do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, it reminds me that Jeff Bezos once was chatting with Warren Buffett. And I don't know if this is true or this is made up. You know, Half the quotes out there are all by Einstein and he didn't say half of them. So <laughs> this is one of those possibly. <laughs> Jeff Bezos said, if your method's so simple, like why don't, he's asking, remember Jeff Bezos talking to Warren Buffett and he says, if your method's so simple, why don't other people just copy you? Like why, you know, why can't they do what you do? And, he, and Buffett said, because no one wants to get rich slow. And that's it. That's the key, right? I've been working for 10 years. I've been investing since 2012. Obviously, it's been mostly a bull market, mostly upsides. Easy to say that now. But now we're going through some tough periods and I'm holding on and it's it could get much worse. And we're going to be here. going to be here doing the same stuff, you know, promoting the same message. So, you know, it might be. And as I said, I, I could completely see the next decade like sideways. It would. And people are going to say, oh, look, he promoted the book right at the top and doesn't it's not doesn't work anymore. Blah, blah, blah. It's happened. But we got to wait. I mean, if you if 30 years from now, a globally diversified stock portfolio is would have been down from where it is today, then I think the thesis is broken. 30 years from now, a globally diversified, not just the U.S., but like a globally diversified portfolio is lower than where it is today. Even after adjusting for inflation, so to speak, that's when I think this like the history stuff is done. And then all this hundred and we have a hundred years of this history, right? Since DFA ran this numbers, the equity risk premium, which is the return above bonds across all these developed markets is like four to five percent. And that's like a global average across all these things. That's what I'm basing my stuff on. Not just the US. The don't get me wrong, the US has been fantastic and I think we'll continue to do well, but you know, I can't just believe in the U.S. because you never know what might happen, right? You know, the, the principles that you're talking about, too, they apply to much more than just investing in the stock market or investing in real estate. I mean, I, I, I tell my students this all the time. I'm like, the only difference between somebody who's wealthy and successful in investing in real estate is that when it got boring, when it got hard, when it got stressful, when it got annoying, when they just didn't feel like doing it, they just kept doing it and they stuck to their plan, right? Even when they felt like, hey, I'm not getting the return that I think I should be getting right now, they kept sticking to their plan. Those are the ones that come out on the other side successful and everybody else quits and they and then they don't make it, right? So if you can apply that print, those same principles to your investing strategy, no matter what it is, I think you're going to be uh, in a much better position uh, in the long term than you were by either stopping or not doing it at all. 
Exactly. Right. And that's the problem is there are people now that are quitting, that are getting out, moving to cash, doing whatever, and they may not get back in ever, or maybe not for a long time. And that's what you worry about. And I know that happened in COVID. I know that happened. there were people in March, 2020 that said, Oh no, I'm out of here. And they still haven't gotten back in. I'm they're too afraid. And now, especially yeah, I'm not going to get in now. It's even crazier. Even though, it's, even though now the prices are cheaper, right? It's funny if they got in now, they still be paying more. Like I think right now we're at like December, 2020 levels, which means they'd still would have bought like, you know, six months higher than where they were in March, 2020. It's kind of ironic, but it's one of those things where like, you know, uh, it's just so interesting to me. This is when that, this is when that wealth is transferred from the fearful to the fearless, man. This exactly. Is in these markets. <laughs> Nick, before we go, do you have any last advice, maybe specifically for people who are just starting to invest? Because I think, at least for me, I've been investing for a while, understand there's market cycles, willing to go through the downturn. But it does seem particularly like a daunting time if you're young and you're just like, this is the first dollar I'm going to invest and it's in a scary market. Do you have any advice for those people? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll just go back to what I said earlier. Like, it's in the grand scheme of your life, like if you're starting right now, this is probably one of the best times to start because like, honestly, however much money you put in, it's going to, it's going to pale in comparison to like the future. Like if you're starting right now, so let's, let me do a little bit of math in my head. You're going to be retiring in like what, 40 years from now. So let's say 2060s, right? So like really what the stock market does from 2022 to 2032 matters far less than what the stock market does from from 2062 to 2072, right? Because how much money you're going to have invested now? Very little. How much you're going to have invested then? Very likely a lot. God, you know, God forbid some freak accident or something, you can't make money and income and save money over your life, assuming that doesn't happen and you can build wealth. Like what's going to happen in 2062 to 2072 is far more important for your life and for my life and our wealth and everything than what happens in the next decade. So, there's just no, I mean, mathematically, that's just true. There's no way around it, right? And so once you accept that, you'll be like, oh, yeah, it doesn't really matter if I, if this dollar becomes 50 cents in the next year because it's it, you don't have that much, you know. The, the big lever you have now, if you're young and just getting started, is not your capital. It's your labor. It's what you do with your time. Your time is your big lever. It's not your capital. And so I'm not saying don't care about investing. Who gives a crap? I'm saying, of course, learn about it. Have fun with that. But it's not the big lever. The lever's your time, right? And as you get older, that lever gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And then your capital is your lever, right? So you got to think about like how the levers change over time. So that's what I would say. That's a cool perspective. Nick, this is a great perspective. And I hope everyone's listening to this. Of course, we've been talking mostly about the stock market today and REITs, but your perspective on risk and long-term thinking, I think can be applied to really any asset class. So hopefully everyone here uh, is learning a lot. I know I learned a lot today. Nick, if people want to connect with you, buy your book, uh, read your blog, where should they do that? So yeah, to connect with me, uh, Twitter, my handle is at dollars and data. And on Instagram, it's at Nick Majuli. I do have scammers on Instagram. So please, you'll see. I hope there's the right, find the right one. Oh Good my luck. God. I don't know. They're the I don't worst. Know. It's just Nick it's Majuli, unbelievable. I, I, tell, I, I, I don't want to get into that right now, but I answer every DM. So DM me, I answer every single DM. I do not miss one. So, um, Feel free to send those out. And then books on Amazon, just keep buying. Um, and my blogs of dollarsanddata.com. So anyways, appreciate your guys' time. Thanks for having me on. It's, I think it was, it's been awesome. Good combo. All right. Thanks a lot. Nick Majuli, Chief Operating Officer at Ritz Holds Wealth Management. His blog is of dollars and data. And his book is Just Keep Buying. <laughs> Well, I learned a lot. Most importantly, that if you just buy an index fund of the S&P 500, you get employee discounts at every <laughs> single of the largest store companies in the entire United States. Absolutely. You, you, should, you should definitely put that. No, don't put that into practice. <laughs> that's terrible advice. But, but no, I, I learned a lot. And, you know, I like I like when we talk to people who have slightly different investing niches or even different asset classes, because really what it boils down to is the principles are fairly similar. And if you follow the fundamentals and keep the same principles, you can diversify. It's OK to invest in other asset classes outside of real estate. You just have to a educate yourself, B, buy, write, and C, hold it, right? Like, just just be intelligent about what you're doing. And uh, I think diversification is, is, is awesome. Absolutely. I mean, I think if you listen to Nick talk, 
and you changed some of the words out and you didn't know he was talking about the stock market, like he might as well have just been talking about real estate. He's talking about continuing to buy, thinking about things in the long term, not focusing, not getting into analysis paralysis. You know, there's like a lot of the same principles. Um, and I love it because I just think through it, it shows that real estate investing is not this mysterious thing or investing in general is just not this like thing that is so hard to understand. It actually is relatively simple. It's about just informing yourself to the level where you have confidence and, and understand like the long-term outlooks for these asset classes, which is hopefully what we're trying to do on the show. Absolutely, man. You, you, you develop a plan and then you stick to it. I think where we, where we tend to go wrong in any asset class is when we, when we veer away from the plan, when we start to see that those numbers go into the red and we, and we hit that panic button, I think, uh, that's when, that's when things start to look funky. But if you can look past all that, like, yeah, real estate may be down at some point, but at the long term, where are you planning to be? Where do you think it's going? <laughs> yeah, that that's, that's so well said. You know, I was, I was kind of joking about the FOMO buying of REITs, but in another way, I'm kind of not joking because I feel like as an investor, it's super important to like, we talk about this all the time on the show, like know your niche, like know what you're focusing on. And like, I just know right now I can't focus on industrial investing. I'm just not, I'm not going to go out and buy a, a storage space. Like I wish I could, but I just don't have time for that right now. And like, I, I think it's like a good outlet to not distract myself. Cause like, otherwise I'm gonna be like, damn, I should be buying all these other things. And I'm like, oh, I'll just go on Robinhood and buy a little bit. So I feel like I'm in the game. And like, honestly, I know it sounds dumb, but it, it like helps me focus on the, the investing things that I am trying to prioritize and not getting and not making me feel bad like I'm missing out on something. Yeah, you, you get to you get to scratch that FOMO itch and then you move on and do the things you're good at, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I, I don't think that's bad at all. All right, man. Well, thanks so much. It was great being here with you. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you again real soon. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market, it's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.